Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tinkser. We at Hospitality Mavericks are here to inspire leaders to create heart-centered and profitable businesses from the inside out, the kind that builds employees and customers love and support. Thanks to BizSimply for sponsoring this episode as our show partner. BizSimply is the all-in-one HR, workforce management, roles and operations software designed and built by hospitality experts to make every shift run like clockwork. And we join forces to help the industry find new ways to become even more innovative in how we meet our people, how we operate, and how we grow our businesses, to how we serve our customers. Together, we want to share strategies and tools to make the industry thrive long-term, not just survive. One of the problems with marketing today is it's massively over, overcomplicated, and people have lost sight of the absolute simplicity of the basic precepts of marketing. They got lost in the intricacies of you know, LinkedIn and uh, online, online content with, without going back to the basics that which, uh, which I preach. You talk about a definition of brand. I believe that marketing is simply storytelling. So your brand perception is your story, right? It's the word, concept or idea that you own in the mind of your customers. And this is not new stuff. It's been around since 1972 with Al Reese and Jack Trout, you know, fundamentally their gurus of positioning with their books on the battle for the brain. You know? And the creation of that wonderful statement, marketing is a battle of perceptions, not of brands. So it's the idea that you own in the mind of your customers. This is Chris Hughes. He's a business coach, mentor, and speaker. He has strong experience in general management of business and is an expert in brand, marketing, and value proposition. I've long wanted Chris to join us here on the show due to have seen the impact his advice and support does for business owners and entrepreneurs. I've also myself been in the lucky position to have him as my mentor for my own ventures and entrepreneurial journey the last five years, and his guidance and advice has been critical for me to survive the storms we've been in, but also have a strategic focus on the future. He has a wealth of experience as marketing director roles at Mars, Pillsbury, and been the UK of Sprint Sports Group, the famous tennis rackets. And he was instrumental in being part of selling that business to Benetton after 10 years. Since 2000, he's been part of Vistas, the world's leading member-only organization for CEOs, and he runs a number of membership groups for CEOs there, speaking of brand and marketing, and have run consultancy with companies on the side. In this conversation, we dive into the power of brand, and when, when it's powered by culture, and it not just become a shiny logo and a smart strapline. Basically, how can you build a brand that is not just a commodity, but a brand with raving fans and that makes impact beyond being a business. We discussed the learnings Chris have done building brands over decades and also advising on them, and what you need to do in today's world to be relevant for your employees and customers. If you liked today's episode, it would mean the world to me if you could leave a review of the show on either our website, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. The better the news, the better the game, and ultimately, the better the learning is for you. There are lots of great examples of this conversation of companies that have found better ways of building their brand and therefore not just make better business results, but also impact beyond what they ever could imagine. Enjoy. Today's conversation starts out, I think, Chris, maybe correct me because my memory is bad because, you know, I have small children, but we met about the pandemic really wiped me out, but I think it was 2018 in Brighton. There was an mm. event, the Brighton Summit, and I was standing in the TQ and there was this lovely gentleman standing in front of me and we started chatting. And quite quickly, we ended up in the conversation about good to great. Yeah, yeah. And and I think we got quite, so oh, that was interesting. There's somebody that really believes in there is a different way to build a business or a brand for that sake. And that's actually the vision for today's conversation. And we have done a number of things together, Chris, and I've been trying to get you on the show for some while. And you said, maybe it's not my thing, but I'm really glad that you're here, Chris, because you are, you know, 
a good friend, but a mentor as well, and help me steer through some things and get a bit more clear about how I actually, as a business founder, actually need to understand more than anything else, how do I actually build a brand that's powered by the culture I create? And actually, how do I do it more? I maybe knew the concept of this. So, so with that said, welcome to the show, Chris. I'm so excited that we are finally here. Thank you very much indeed, Michael. You may be excited. I'm just nervous. As you said, this is the first time I've done this, so it's an interesting experience. I can tell the audience out there you are in good hands with Chris. is, as he would tell you in a second, huge amount of experience to come, even though he's nervous, he said. So, Chris, for people to get a bit of context besides that we met, I've already touched around, mm. you know something about brand. Can you give people a bit, you know, maybe the journey? This is quite a journey, but maybe give them the highlights of the journey and how you got to where you got to with your understanding on how you build brand okay. in, in the modern world. Okay. Well, the journey really started leaving university way back in early 60s. I was at a very small university, East Anglia. Only 125 of us outweighed women to men by two to one, but that's a whole new story. Then essentially left university and found myself as a salesman up in the northwest, operating out of Manchester. They paid me £900 a year and gave me a car, and I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. <laughs> it was amazing. Learned the, learned the rudiments of selling on that basis, but then I noticed that the marketing guys seemed to be having a better time. They went mm. out to lunch more often, they went out to London more often, so I thought, well, I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to become a marketing guy. And I just pestered people until somebody was stupid enough to make me a brand manager of a brand. I and the brand survived. I then worked my way through a number of companies, eventually ended up in Mars as marketing manager, then marketing director at Pillsbury, and eventually found myself running my own company, Prince UK, left that, left that and then basically became involved with Vistage, the world's largest organization, for, peer group organization for CEOs, sorry. Best thing I ever did, uh, became a speaker there on marketing, uh, developed a specialism, which was essentially uh, brand positioning. And you know, from, all, from there comes everything else. And, and it's really interesting you say Prince, because I think maybe some people, it's not in the forefront, but that's a very famous squash racket. Well, it was initially, first and foremost, a very famous tennis racket, large-headed tennis racket. I developed a large-headed tennis squash racket here in the UK. It was, didn't take rocket science to see there was an application because the UK was the biggest squash market over there. Huge battle politically with the marketing department in the States as to where we should position it. They wanted to stick it in at a low price point. I wanted to make it exceptional, position it at the top end of the market. That battle went on for some considerable time. I prevailed. The brand became a huge success. The first non-British brand ever to achieve a number one status in the UK squash market. Mm. And it was there that I actually learned the importance of the one of the basic precepts of marketing and brand building, which is knowing what you're selling to whom at what emotional level. And, and one of the things, you know, because that's really, you know, important in any business. But one of the things also that comes in, what I think has been really interesting in our conversation, Chris, is also that you also believe that, you know, besides doing that, you're doing that to be a business as a force for good at the same time. Can you talk a bit about as you started to see that, you know, maybe there was a different way yeah. or some companies, because when we met up the first time, what we really talked was on like these good to great companies yeah. that were consistently yeah. doing consistently well over time because they really understood who their market was and they served it really well, right. but also they took care of their market and yeah. the external stakeholders in that. So essentially, you'd like me to talk about brands being a force for good. Yeah. Well, can't see any reason why you'd want to be the opposite, you know, <laughs> force for evil, unless you wanted to yeah. operate on the dark yeah. web. Almost, yeah. Yeah. But being a force for good, I think, is uh, an essentially part of setting up a, a real point of distinction and distinctiveness and being able to make a huge emotional connection to your customers. The easiest way to demonstrate that, I think, is to talk about charities because they're brands operating in a fiercely competitive market, you know, striving for the, for the charity pound, right? But think of things like Cancer UK or the Red Cross or, you know, Fair Trade, the co-op and people like that, right? 
I mean, they're essentially differentiating themselves from the, from their competitors by being a force a force for good. So if you know, in positioning your brand, you can achieve that. You're a huge way to winning in your market. But don't fool yourself that, you know, just promoting we plant a tree is developing a, a cause. That's just a promotion. It needs to be much more, much deeper than that and much more emotionally felt. Can you give an example of somebody that has really achieved that on a large scale, that really have scaled that story and actually is that, you know, force for good in the most thing they do? It's not just planting trees or a bit of beautiful writing on the wall. Okay, I think probably the way I could best answer that is to talk about a couple of projects I've done recently with charities, mm. very lo- local charities. I did some work with a, a, a charity called Chaley Heritage, which is an amazing place. One of the pre- precepts that I u- use in working with people is, you know, a brand is a single word concept or idea that you own in the mind of your customers. Yeah. First time I went around there, the one word that just kept coming back to me time and time again was, this is amazing. And we've created a platform there of, you know, Chaley Heritage, where amazing happens. And it's become part of their overall marketing campaign. You know, when they're applying, when they're looking for people to apply as for a job, they talk about, you know, you can do an ordinary job or you can do an amazing job. When they're talking to sponsors, they talk about, you can sponsor a worthy charity or you can sponsor an amazing charity. So it's become part of their parlance on that basis. And so, so when you are this, you know, force for good, one of the things you told me as well is that of commercially, you really need to get your foundation in place. So you've already given us the definition of a brand, but what is the foundation to create that definition you know because you need to get some basic things and one of the things when i work with you has been very it's very simple what you need yeah, to do yeah, but it, people it, don't do it it really is simple yeah right? and i think frankly one of the problems with marketing today is it's massively over over complicated and people have lost sight of the absolute simplicity of the basic precepts of marketing they've got lost in the intricacies of you know, LinkedIn and uh, online online content with, without going back to the basics that which uh, which I preach. You talk about a definition of brand. I believe that marketing is simply storytelling. So your brand perception is your story, right? It's the word concept or idea that you own in the mind of your customers. And this is not new stuff. It's been around since 1972 with Al Reese and Jack Trout. You know, fundamentally, they're gurus of positioning with their books on the battle for the brain, you know, and the creation of that wonderful statement. Marketing is a battle of perceptions, not of brands. So it's the idea that you own in the mind of your customers. And the easiest way to understand that is to think in terms of, I don't know, Volvo. Mm. The single word they seek to own is safety. So their brand story is based upon safety. FedEx the single word they attempt to achieve is overnight, when it absolutely has to be there overnight. And, you know, the Savoy, Mm. gentlemen serving gentlemen, or ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. And they own the concept of genteel luxury. Mm. And these are all brands we know and Mm. been, many have been in touch with and actually think, yeah, you know, there was probably a time, I don't know if that's still the case, that Avis tried harder when you hired a car. And again, yeah. I guess also the foundation is actually keep on doing what Absolutely. works. Because again, you what you said that we have complicated and then we want to change and yeah. you see a brand change or yeah. they change the, the color, the whole, you know, right. the tagline yeah. and the action. And we're going to come back to that in a second. It was, it was clear, it's clear you were listening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Avis is a classic, you know, we're number two, so we try harder. You know, they were on that position for for decades. But unfortunately, their, their customer service was ranking them three or four. Um, new CEO comes in, looks at it, and finds that uh, essentially they've slipped down the people's perception of trying harder. So instead of going back to a situation where he literally went back to his basic precepts and pushed everybody to demonstrate on a day-by-day basis, he went off into some area of, you know, it's your choice or your luxury or something. And they completely lost, lost direction. They came back to it, but... You know, once you've got that sort of perception in somebody's mind, it's critical, absolutely critical that you hold on to it, right? It's worth a fortune. You put it on the balance sheet, it's worth millions, right? <clears throat> and I believe it's an utmost responsibility of a CEO and a board to understand exactly what their brand equity is. 
handing it over to the marketing department is an incredibly dangerous thing to do. Because right? marketing departments in the main are fascinated by newness and bringing forward new thinking. But whereas it's the board's responsibility, in my view, to, to say, we have this property, we need to protect it. I'll tell you a story on that. When I, when I first started to work with Mars, I was sat down by the then marketing director who said to me, Chris, understand one thing. You are transitory. You know, you will be gone long before mm. the brand changes. Your job is to understand what the brand stands for, guard it, burnish it, grow it, change nothing without a great deal of thought and deliberation. Right? So, you know, it's a board responsibility, a CEO responsibility to un- understand the power of the brand of brand equity. Yeah, and you said it had like a very important point on the balance sheet as well and that's what's really interesting when you go in and there might be like a workshop and then the whole company changes and they suddenly they can't understand five years down the line that the brand value is gone because all the behaviors goes with it all all the things that made you special and you see it time on time brand on brand and i think really one that's really good at doing it if you like them or not they are my coca-cola they are very consistent in 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 that message and their positioning has not changed how they launch product how they test them they do the same and the same again and same i worked for mcdonald's for years you don't change anything you just guard the brand absolutely i mean take take prince as an example the times i worked there globally we got to a position where we were number two or three in the world we were a high price, high price point, but we still managed to become the aspirational brand. It has been bought time and time again by people who have simply chased the dollar. Right? It is. It's now almost a dead brand. I'm watching Wimbledon at the moment, and I'm struggling to see any evidence at all of Prince. It's been asset stripped so many times. Right? And I go back to this particular point. A brand is an item on your balance sheet. There are books ad nauseum out there on brand equity. Mm. They're incredibly complex to read. But essentially, the essence of them is a a really good brand positioning is worth millions on your balance sheet. The, could you, because one of the things I found really interesting as we've been working, you often talk about there's like four phases to build a brand. Yeah. And of course, you start somewhere on yeah. that journey and the perception yeah. of the mind, especially when you're a new brand. And yeah. that's what I'm working on right now with like an unknown identity and yeah. how do you actually, because my dream is that it becomes, you know, a brand that people love, trust, want to support and actually mm. want to help because mm. we want to change mm. the world by the way we eat and we maybe use Fabu- our example. Fabulous phrase, by the way, fabulous phrase. Thank Changing you. the world by the way we eat. Yeah, thank you. So, so how do we actually get to that point where we are? Like you call it a brand, okay. a cult brand, or okay. a, a brand as religion. There's four phases, and your principles start yeah. where you are commodity, I guess. Okay, I think you may be mixing out two things. Let's go back to this four phases thing. My realization as uh, the longer I went on working and speaking and talking about marketing was, for all its complexity, it is the basic precepts are still utterly simple. There are four basic steps to creating a brand. One, write your brand story. Call it your your value proposition or your positioning statement. It doesn't matter. But as marketing is essentially storytelling, let's talk about writing your brand story. Second step, illustrate that brand story on your website and your marketing material. Third step, tell your brand story in terms of content, relevant content going out. And last but not least, and this is absolutely critical, live your brand. You know? I, I'm go back to go back to Avis. You know, their proposition was we're number two. We try harder. Just requires one guy in the warehouse to go. Sorry, I don't. Right? Mm. And the whole thing falls apart. And so, exactly what you're saying is like, if you want to have like a brand like innocent these you know more you know disruptive brand and sectors ben and jerry mm. we stay in food mm. we worked in a local one called manjus there's a little indian disruptor oh, here but yeah. if you want to create that brand what you're saying is like it's not enough to come down with of course you need to have the value proposition many people yeah. get to that but like where i think sometimes goes off it's when they have to start living it 
Yeah. And it becomes an ingrained yeah. behavior of the culture. It's not just、yeah. some clever marketing thing we've done right, to show、right. to investors or、right. to get some sales or open、Absolutely. the doors. Exactly what we do in everything we do every day. Yeah, you make a really good point. Too many companies go out and employ you know, marketing consultants and advertising agencies, and they come up with a catchy phrase. Right? They stick it in their marketing and think it's done. Right? That's frankly the almost the least important of the, of the steps. I go back to my original point. The most important step is getting everybody in the organization to understand what it stands for,、mm. to buy into it, and to live it.、Right? I've developed over time an approach to this, which is actually writing something called the Book of Beliefs and Culture. Yeah, and and that becomes a critical part of the program. And we did it with Manjus, you and I. And as far as I'm, as far as I understand, it was very successful. Yeah, and it's still a book they use today. And I think what's really interesting about this book is actually how they do things here. Absolutely. And I think we can dive into that now, where that becomes really important from an early stage. So this is、mm. a small business,、mm. seven,、mm. seven, eight people at that time when we did the work with them. But actually, hiring a person can have tremendous. Impact. Give、oh, yeah. that example. If they get the wrong person on that、you're、doesn't live the Manjus、oh, culture, you're so, right. you're so right. And actually, what they found as they sat down and did this piece of work to get it off, so they got their value proposition in place, redefining Indian cooking, and then from Indian, there, Indian food. Indian food, yeah. Sorry, and then they start building the behaviors they needed to see、yeah. in their organization or、yeah. wanted to see and、yeah. believe. They already knew these things、yeah. working. It was nothing new. They just got it down, and they started、yeah. sharing it with people. And actually, there was actually people that didn't show up to interviews because they、Could、sent that book as a PDF. Really? They just because they said, "I'm not gonna live under that culture." And actually, that was the best thing that could happen because then、Absolutely. there's only the right people showing、Absolutely. up. And if they came in the door, they told me after we'd done this work, and they said they asked them, "So what really stood out for you in the book of culture?" Oh, I. Didn't have time to read it. I thought it was part of the onboarding process, and then they said, "Well, there's no reason for us to talk anymore." Oh, that's fabulous! Because the book of culture is an amazing document. It's essential for people's understanding of how they behave and the values of the business. But it's a fabulous recruiting tool, and you've just explained how it does and it does work. It's also a fabulous reviewing tool, on the basis of you know your 90-day review. It'd say, "Give me one example of how, in the last 90 days, you have." Behaved in a way that underscores one of our values and one of our behaviours, and tell me a story about somebody else you've seen in the organisation doing that, and you create a sort of virtuous circle on that basis. Yeah, I am sick to death of going into companies and seeing values stuck on the wall, yeah, and behaviours which completely and utterly contradict that. Too many companies think that values are handed down from the board, and they're not. They're, they're they're discussed and agreed from the bottom and work their way up from that particular point. But what you need is a basic platform to which people can relate those beliefs and those behaviours. Yeah. So with Manjus, we were talking about redefining in Indian foods. So what beliefs do we have behind that? And one of those beliefs, as you recollect, was we you know we will only ever do vegetarian food,、mm. etc. Right. And there were a whole series of consequent behaviours dropping out from that. It all fell together incredibly well. Yeah, I think what's really interesting in that process we did with Manjus and we done it in a couple other situations is again that you actually get the team involved as you said it's、oh, a bottom、God. up process、yeah. so actually because most people even if it's not written down、mm-hmm. or maybe there's a little bit written down they maybe actually tell you how they actually understand it actually and sometimes your word for it is maybe not the right word as、yeah. the CEO、mm-hmm. and you find out okay actually、yeah. we need to call it something else yeah because it's going to work. Much better because they buy into it, and you want them to buy into these things, and thereby they start living these values, which actually bring your、yeah. value proposition to life. Let, let, let me tell you a story on that. I'm doing an exercise with a company, which will, will of course go unnamed, on a change project because I speak on change as well,、mm. and it's quite clear to me that, irrespective of the project that I'm helping them to change, nothing will happen because of the culture in the organisation. Yeah. So what I've done is gone back to the board and said. No, said that. Give me your permission to work for one session with these guys on defining culture in this organization. You walk into that organization, and it's clear that there is a huge lack of trust and lack of respect、mm. in both ways. You know, up to the board and down again. 
And so it's not rocket science for us to be able to create a series of values and beliefs that's based on, th- on, based on respect. One of the behaviors that has come out of it is we respect everybody's value in the, in, in the, in the chain of supply. So, for instance, we respect everybody's time. So meetings start and end on time because mm. your time is as, as important as mine. Yeah. So it's those sort of behaviors that underscore the basic values and create cultures. And when you do that, you know, beliefs plus behavior equals culture. Yeah. Right? Out, of, out of that creation of culture drops your values. The problem is with most people is they start with a list of values and then try to squeeze everything into adhering with those. I mean, when you, and when you know that, for instance, Enron had as one of their values transparency, well, mm-hmm. <laughs> you'd have to say no more, do you? Yeah, no. It's really interesting also when you talk about values. Is there, like, because many people ask me, and it'd be interesting to ask you as well, this, as you are, you know, developing your values or your book of culture, your book of beliefs, whatever yeah. you call it, principle yeah. that has many different names and is seen yeah. in many different shapes and yeah. forms. Yeah. As you start to get clear about why yeah. some of these companies are successful, there's a company... I've talked a lot about and interviewed Ari, the founder, it's called Singermans. He's wrote and written a whole book on their belief system yeah. and how they use it, which is a very complicated actually. And yeah. then he's tended down to one page he shares with his staff. That's right. That's it. And the, sim- and the, if I can yeah. the, simp- the simplest way to understand what I'm talking about and grasp it into in, in sort of very realistic terms is to read a very short book about the All Blacks yeah. called Legacy. Yeah. All right. And it becomes absolutely clear. I mean, one of their one of their beliefs is, excuse my language, but no dickheads. Right? You may be the best second row on the planet, but if you're a dickhead, you don't get into this organizer, into this team. It illustrates how they operate as a team. So, for instance, at the a, at the end of a training session, the people who stay behind to clean up the the changing room are the captain and vice captain. Right. Everybody is part of a team. Zappos is another amazing organization. Their platform is what driven by service or powered by service. Go online and look at their book of culture. It contains amazing phrases like, you know, we exist to create a wow experience. And then they define what a wow experience is. All this stuff I'm talking about, it's not new. I've just brought them all together. Yeah, I think what's interesting is that you have to do the work. I think a lot of people comes up with the values and they spend one workshop, but they don't take no, that yeah. time to get Absolutely. it written down, yeah. work with it, change it, yeah. adapt it. You know, the world changes. Maybe there needs to be a review of them. It doesn't mean sure. they, they radically change, yeah. but maybe the way you communicate, you found better words for it. You have new people on the team, blah, blah. But how many values? Because I think my first question before was, see, how many values do you actually need to bring your life together? Is that like a th- rule of thumb or the values you need? Five or six. Yeah. Five or six. I mean, there's a Less great, is more, I guess. Less is more, exactly. Yeah. There's a great module out there which a number of companies are adapting. Vistage, I know, is, is sponsoring it. It's called EOS, the Entrepreneurial Operation, Operating System. And it's very valid. It's basically a module of how a business becomes more effective by putting in more effective processes. But my concern with this, it starts off by the very first step is define your values. <laughs> and people say, oh, well, fine, we'll do that. We'll stick down half a dozen words. That's, that's a tick box operation. We've done it. No, it's define your beliefs because your beliefs drive your behavior, drives your culture, and out of your culture comes your values. So EOS may be great, but it's got it the wrong way around. It's interesting, you know, Hack, Wickman, not Hackman, Wickman and his team on the US, I love a lot of the way they can do that thing. But actually, I think both the vision bit as well, you say, and the values bit, you have to be a bit careful. You don't just see it as, oh, I need to fill it out on this one yeah. page and move yeah. on. Yeah. Because there's actually some very deep work, because sure. we're going to come back to vision, and purpose in a second. But yeah. And, and the trick is to keep it simple, keep it empathetic so people can understand it. Yeah. I'm obsessed with, and you know, I've spoken to you with you many times, about formula. Vision plus action equals mission and how you actually define vision in one sentence. And that sentence should start a world in which, and I always quote Bob Geldof. Yeah. His vision was a world in which nobody dies of hunger, right? Your vision is a world in which people improve the world by the way they eat, 
it's that simple. Ac- actions and mission change because mission is the only place where you actually m- measure the metrics, but your vision remains the same. I, was, I did some work with a fire company not so long ago, and their vision was incredibly simple. A world in which nobody dies in fire, right? It's never going to happen. Craig Kramer's big, hairy, audacious goal, but it's what gets people out of bed on a wet Monday morning. Yeah. It's quite interesting when I've heard you talk and some of the work you've done, you talk, many marketeers talk about the USP. And the USP is like the thing, your unique selling point. You really need to understand, you know, that point. And they start, and then they go in after my field, after you clarify what that is, they start to discuss price. Right. And often they say people would never pay that, where in Britain we come back to your conversation from Prince, where I say, well, of course they will not if you haven't really touched them from the head to the heart. That's a very good point. In my time in Mars, we were obsessed with the USP, Mm. created by Ross Reeves in a book called Reality and Marketing or something like that, way, way back. And I know that in retrospect, that I probably missed half a dozen multi-million product opportunities because I couldn't tick the absolute unique selling proposition box. There was always somebody else out there who could do it or could replicate it. I woke up to the demise of the USP when I started to understand that it was being replaced by something called the OESP, right? And that's one of the questions I ask people when I'm working with them. What is your OESP? They struggle to understand what it is and eventually come to realize that we're talking about something called an owned emotional sales proposition. Owned emotional sales proposition. And the easiest way to understand that, of course, is to go back to Volvo. Safety is not something that they own to the detriment of everybody else. All new cars coming out are safe. But the perception, the word, the concept of safety is lodged in most people's mind via Volvo. And that's an owned emotional sales proposition. And that's also, then we come to the price conversation, but often it's interesting, it is in in my view, that what kind of price can you charge? Because I guess Volvo, because they own that proposition in people's head, people don't, you know, maybe they have to consider buying a Volvo because of the price, but again, they understand why it's more expensive than the mid-range car market. It's... Yeah, that positioning enables them to be slightly premium. It's a justification as to why. Because we buy emotionally, and then we look for rational reasons to justify it. So they know to whom they're selling safety to dads and granddads with kids and grandchildren and all the rest of it, right, at the, top end, at the top end of the market. And those sort of people go, fine, I know I'm spending a few more pounds, but it's worth it, yeah. right, because the kids I'm looking after are important. And that's the emotional, emotional connection. So the USP is dead. It's been replaced by the OESP. And, and if you stay a bit with that, I think also be interesting to, because you talked about vision before, and there's a lot of talk about brand with purpose in the moment. You need yeah. to have a brand with purpose. You need to be do good in the world. And we sure. talked a bit about like business as yeah. a force for good. And, you know, how do we actually, you know, how do we actually, you know, what role does purpose play? Is that just a new word for what many companies maybe have done for decades? And yes. that has always yeah. been purpose-led yeah. businesses, just yeah. as a different word, I guess. Well, consumers to a large extent have changed, whereas they just literally used to do what we as marketeers told them to do, you know, via TV advertising and all the rest of it. Consumers are now much, much more demanding. They look for brands and products to purchase, which not only meet their needs, but actually meet a greater need, have a bigger purpose, play a more important part in the world and society in which they live. And go back to your brand. Right? Mm. I mean, there are lots of pulses out there. I could go into, into a store and buy pulses and come out and create a product. But I'm taken by your product because you've defined the value added with it. You've created recipes and all the rest of it. And I love that phrase that you've created, changing the world by the way we eat. Right? I mean, that's a, that's a brilliant definition of a larger purpose. Right? And I think the people who are going to buy your brand, and they will, you know, see themselves as a sort of Seth Godin tribe, people who are committed to changing the world by the way they eat and also changing their own health and well-being. Yeah, because exactly what we thought about as we said that because we need to help people first to become healthy. Absolutely. To actually create a healthy planet. Yeah. And pulses yeah. is 
for people that don't know, but it's actually one of the most healthiest way to eat, give, you know, longevity, there's yeah. lots of yeah. minerals and fibers, but also it's actually very good for the planet yeah. when people start eating more pulses because actually it fixes nitrogen in yeah. the air, in yeah. the ground yeah. and in the soil, which is actually one of the biggest challenges we have as humanity right now, as we can see you going through a very hot summer again. Yeah. So it, it solved two things and we can actually, and we eat three times a day. So we were a very big believer of that is actually our key thing. Actually, how can we actually make sure there's pulses and as many of those meals? And actually, we, how do we actually make the pulse you, sexy you, thing? You're actually making the pulse the star of the meal. I mean, I've read a million recommendations from doctors and keep fit people saying, you know, have more pulses in your business, less eat less the processed foods and the rest of it. And my reaction is, I've always thought of pulses as being dry and boring. Yeah. Right? But what you guys are doing, and which is why I applaud your effort, is whilst you have a greater purpose, which is to change the world the way you, by the way you eat, you've actually produced some exceptionally good products. You know, I know. You give me samples, I take them home. Mm. Yeah, my wife and I love them. Yeah. But I think it starts again. I think it is really important in this conversation as well that you can have the most brilliant position strategy but if yeah. your product yeah. doesn't stand on itself absolutely. you have nothing absolutely right. and i think again the, the brands we mentioned like volvo if they didn't build these really good cars mm. and just talked about mm. safety they would not have that positioning so again you have to live it in everything you do yeah well going back to prince for instance be the best you can be we were positioned at the top end of the market but yes there was a discernible difference between our rackets and other people's. Not a huge amount, but people's perception. And remember, you know, marketing is a battle of perceptions, not a battle of products, all right? You know, we actually delivered higher value for the money we charged. When it comes to, because most people actually want to end in that, you know, super human, you know, product market fit where they can charge that price that gives them the right GP uh-huh. and, but what is it that happens then? As Because I think most brands actually start there with that ambition that they want to have that, you know, place in people's mind. I want to charge that price. And then suddenly we hit real world. I've been in these conversations myself where we start saying, oh, we can't sell it through that channel if we don't lower the price. Yeah. And, and, and then the first time, I believe, the first time you green light that and you go out and do that you're doomed forever you can yeah. never ever increase no. the price again that's yeah. the, i don't believe you can increase the price when yeah. you first have sold it too low let's go back to that point where you and i have discussed in my view you know, something like 80 percent plus of the products and the services i look around are essentially commodities they're non-differentiated and the only thing that drives them is price and the only thing <laughs> the only way to go on price is a race to the bottom right yeah I think now it is essentially incredibly simple for every business, every individual to create a, a brand template for themselves, right? And you and I have proved it, but we've done it a few times. It, it only takes a day to, to work this up, right? And 10 to 15% of, you know, 10% of people can get to that. The next stage, you know, so you've got a brand as a community, brand as a concept, then you've got brands, embedded brands, where everybody in the organization buys into and lives it. That's mm. quite a difficult stage, right? Yeah. But right at the top, maybe what, one, two, three, four percent of the, th- you know, you've got brands like, which are essentially religions, yeah. right? Harley Davidson. Yeah, that's a great example. It's a, a classic. When you can get people to, you know, sort of tattoo your name on the, on their bodies, you know, you've gone beyond just giving a product. You're selling a lifestyle. You're selling membership of a group you're just saying you're selling entry to a society who are harley davidson's people and you, you and i've discussed it many times it it's not the best bike on the market no right a triumph is i believe but you know that's the bike people aspire to because they're not selling bikes they're selling freedom that fabulous phrase they created build your bike build your freedom yeah summed up the whole thing Right, So a brand is that which you're selling to your customers above and beyond the products and services you're offer, offering. So the Harley moves you from A to B and it does it quite efficiently. But the thing it gives you is an emotional intangible called freedom. Right? And it's mostly sold to guys who are up to their ears in mortgages and school fees and all the rest of it. And it gives them the freedom come a weekend to drive around feeling like a, you know, a hippie. Yeah. 
I think, I think another great example everybody knows as well is like Nike. It's also, you know, you are on the winning team. Uh, yeah. yeah, just and, do and it. You just do it. Yeah. do it. And then they got Michael Jordan uh-huh. to be the, you know, the main ambassador for that, you know, winning culture. And, you know, yeah. he is the emphasis of an extreme person that will go through whatever, mm-hmm. even if he has to shout of himself to make or yeah. find somebody to be angry at to win the game, he will find somebody to be angry at. And that's really reflected how Nike wanted to be, that disrupt the brand at that time. There's a fabulous documentary out there. You've just raised it. I watched it recently, you know, because obviously I had a sports marketing background called Air. Yeah. You have to watch it because they broke all the rules. Yeah. I mean, they were courageous. They threw away the rule book. For instance, Nike basketball shoes were a very small percentage of the Nike empire. Yeah. Know, it was dominated by running shoes. Right? And they had a small team and a small budget. And they were, the normal way of doing it was say, let's say they had a quarter of a million pounds of sponsorship money. They would play safe and sponsor two or three players. Yeah, or a team, if they could. Yes, if they could. Well, the budget didn't stretch that far. But what they did was hone in on Michael Jordan and say, I'm going to put every single cent we've got uh, behind him. Right. We're going to break the rules. We're going to we're going to ignore what the NBA talked about in terms of the shoe having to be predominantly white, and they put a lot of red on it. Yeah. Right? And they paid the fine that was issued by the NBA every time Michael Jordan went out and played. Yeah. Right? And just put that in the marketing budget. And they created an advertising campaign that told the story of how they broke the rules, and that instantaneously appealed to the kids who wanted to be rebellious. Yeah. So by buying Michael Jordan's, you know, Air Jordan, I think it was called, they were part of the rebellion against the establishment, against the NBA, so everything had to be read. It's a fabulous documentary. You should watch it. I agree, I agree. And what's really interesting, also, if you Google the Nike manifesto, you come down, I think it's a seven and nine point. That's principle, their book of culture and how they want things to be done in yeah. the business. And yeah. it's written way back by uh, yeah. Phil Knight and yeah. the core team. Absolutely. And you can see they agreed because I read his, yeah. his biography slash you know, brand book around Nike and how they build and how it was yeah. almost going bankrupt seven or nine, nine times. Yeah. But actually the thing, the manifesto they followed and that kept them true. And that's, that's again right. coming back to the book of culture and how you build the brand. Absolutely. So they went from having a co-manufacturer to say, yeah. that's not going to work for us. Yeah. We need to set up our own manufacturing. Everybody thought, where are you going to get that money from? The idea was yeah. big enough mm. and the, you know, the grit was enough yeah. and then he went and did it and you know yeah, now mean, he's probably the biggest sports brand in the world still yeah if you watch that documentary they keep referring to some of these brands that you know culture statements like you know do something bold do something yeah. dangerous and they did something bold they did something dangerous right yeah and look what look what came out yeah um, staggering success what is if you would like say you know if people had to start this journey of building a more, you know, purposeful in, brand, purposeful brand, yeah. impactful brand, a brand that does good. Where should they start? They may be already on a journey mm. with a business, but like they really want to get that emotional buy because they know in the end that's what's going to have most yeah. value if they want to sell the business or just what they, the legacy they want to leave. Yeah. I love that phrase, the legacy they want to leave. Yeah. Well, if you want your brand to be associated, to personify a, a cause or a mission. Make sure that cause and mission is, is genuine. It's just not tagged on because the consumers can see their way through that thing without any, any problems. Make sure that the people you bring on board buy into that in the same way as you do. Get the right people. You know, I'm working with CEOs. I've always said to them, they've only got four things to do. Have an absolutely clear vision of where you're going getting the right people on the bus, creating the right culture, and then go play golf. Let the people just get on with it. So make sure you've got the right people alongside you who believe in the same way as you, as you do, and then work intensely hard to create a relationship with your customer base. Right? Don't try and reach everybody. Mm-hmm. It's almost impossible. Find a segment that you want to reach. Understand what you're selling to whom off what emotional platform. And once you've got that, Magic things will happen. Yeah. Magic things. <laughs> yeah, and then actually you need to go out and try out those things. I think especially what I've learned with a very young brand is that you think you know what 
the right audience is, and then that changes because it's not the right audience right now. It might be yeah. theoretically, but they are not yeah. ready. There's some people out there that are more ready. They either have more pain, but also mm. they actually believe more in what you do, the early adapters. And I think often uh, we just want yeah. the bell curve, but we forget actually to find that, you know, people call it, I think it was a set go. No, it's not Kevin Kelly talked about the thousand true fans you need to yeah, create. Absolutely. Yeah. Simon Sinek did it incredibly well. You know, first up with why. Yeah. Right. He and he talked about targeting and positioning based based on psychographics, you know. Don't just go to the middle of the market and dump your product in there, right? It's mundanity, it's muddied middle, there's no dis differentiation. Go look for the early adapters, the pioneers, the people who will change the market and be associated with them. Apple did it brilliantly on mm. that way, right? We're starting to come into the end, Chris. We can go okay. on for hours, I know. So <laughs> I think we already do. covered some really important ground to, to actually to inspire people to go and look at their, yeah. the position. But what have been your, Chris, and stepping, the, maybe let's step a little bit back yeah. and say, what have like, you know, you working with CEOs, yeah. you've been part of the business network for a long time and you, you coach and mentor CEOs, you've been a CEO yourself. But what have your learnings, you know, your key learnings been in all this disruption that's happened the last couple of years? And there's always been disruption, but it feels like yeah. for many in business yeah. right now, this has been a tough period. Oh, it's been a hell of a tough period, the pandemic, working from home, all those things we, which you know about. Let me limit my re initial response to what have I learned about my own particular spe specialism, you know, marketing and brand positioning. Whilst I used to believe that it was peculiar to a limited number of brands with large budgets, I now believe, understand, and can prove that virtually anybody with any budget can create a brand position for themselves. It's just going through that step-step process, right? Understanding what you're trying to sell to whom, off what emotional platform, writing your brand story, all those things we've already discussed. On a broader basis, the th the, my learnings have been the changing attitudes of customers and workforce. Mm -hmm. right? The old days of command and control, do what I say, etc. they're gone, they're gone. And you know, the CEOs, I think, now have to understand that they have to approach their workforce, they approach their consumers with a different mindset. They have to empathize with them, they have to get on board with them on, on that basis. Yeah, that's super interesting. I totally agree, and I think we are in this still in this transformation as, you know, even I can see CEOs on LinkedIn is asking a very different way to get people back to the offices a bit yeah, more because yeah. they also, you know, they want to yeah. build culture. Yeah, yeah. So in principle, yeah. they are trying to share a bit more about themselves yeah. and how they go yeah. to work. It's a really interesting post from a CEO the other day from ISS, Liz, and she was talking about what she gets out of that transition from home to she goes into work and the uh -huh. reflections she's doing. So she's not saying that people, you have to be in the office, but she's trying actually to create a very different way of actually inspiring people back in because also she said it's very important for for the culture and we don't mm. lose these relationships. And mm. I actually agree in a big large. And uh, I think it's great people have flexibility, but also we need to find a healthy balance. Everything in life is about temperance. I, I agree with you, Hold. I love the hybrid approach. I love Zoom and Teams and all the rest of it for knocking out the banal practicality meetings where previously, you know, you used to travel a day and a half for a meeting of a, an hour in which probably only 10% of it was actually re re requiring face-to-face -face conversation. You know, it's a much more efficient way to do this thing on team. But for, but for that spark, for that creative union, for that creative hybrid, you need face-to-face. -face, yeah. Right? Uh, and that's never going to go away. And I, I, I empathize entirely with those CEOs who are, are struggling with it. Right? Because... <laughs> It's a difficult issue to get that balance right, but yeah. they're going to have to do it. It's, it's one of your most important tasks, actually, is right now, I believe. Chris, we're getting to an end here. What is the... Yeah, I could have gone on talking for hours. Yeah, I know we can write books on this because that's the next thing you need to go and do, isn't it? Write a book. <laughs> and we're not going to dive into that. But what is that like, the one question you wished I asked you and what have you answered? What a great question. The one question... Right. When was it that the light really went on for you, Chris? Right. And I think I would answer that by saying that when I decided to become a speaker on marketing. And my first problem on that was I literally went and, you know, 
vomited over my intellectually vomited over my audience. I knew so much that I just drowned them in it, and I began to understand that it needs to be made much more simple and much more and less less is definitely more. And I also began to understand the wisdom of that phrase. If you want to learn something, then teach it. Right. And when I started to teach this sort of stuff, if you can encompass that in coaching and speaking, when I started to teach this stuff, I had to learn it a great deal more. Yeah, and then you actually really get into the reflection. Really yeah. and that's been my yeah. own learning as well. Uh, yeah. It's like you can talk about something theoretical mm. and you can actually be in the doing of it. Yeah. But I can really understand it takes your ability to teach it in principle. Yeah. And the ability to teach it is to make it interesting, make it a story, keep it yeah. simple, they only remember three things, all those sort of things. Yeah. Yeah. And be that lucky that people can remember 10% when they leave <laughs> the table. Absolutely, yeah. Great, Chris. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your journey, oh. your insights about brand and positioning. And I'm sure there's people out there that they will have questions and thinking about how do I actually learn a bit more about that? How can I reach out to Chris? So what is the best way to, to get in contact with you if you want to have some question answered or some insights or maybe inspiration? The best way is to email me. Yeah, drygill1 at btinternet.com or call me on my mobile 07710-788-326 and let's talk. Great, Chris. I will put that in the show notes as well so people can reach out Fine, if they feel okay. like it. Thank you. Good. I, I've really enjoyed that, Michael. Thank you. That was a really good conversation. There was no reason to be nervous, was there? <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. I really appreciate that you're listening so, if you enjoyed today's conversation, please share with others, rate, or give a review, or subscribe to one of our channels, which all can be done via the website hospitalitymavericks.com. I believe that reading the right books is the key to become a better leader. So I've helped you with a curated list of some of the best books to improve yourself, others, and the organization. Find them on hospitalitymavericks.com. A big thank you to Biz Simply for supporting us, bringing great insights, strategies, and tools that help leaders to become better every day. Check them out at bizsimply.com or on their socials at bizsimply or bizsimplyhq. You can also email them directly at podcast at bizsimply.com. Thank you to Fina Charlson, who is the show producer from the podcast Connected. If you have any ideas and feedback for the show or other thoughts, reach out to me via LinkedIn or via my email, michael at hospitalitymavericks.com. I'm Michael Tinkser, and you've been listening to the Hospitality Maverick podcast show. Be Maverick.